Uh, The first one is from Isaiah chapter 6. And Isaiah prophesied to the southern kingdom after the kingdom's split. So we'll be reading from chapter 6 and we're starting at verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I. Send me. He said, go and tell this people, be ever hearing, but never understanding, be ever seeing, but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people calloused, make their ears dull and close their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, for how long, Lord? And he answered, Until the cities lie ruined and without inhabitant, until the houses are left deserted and the fields ruined and ravaged, until the Lord has sent everyone far away and the land is utterly forsaken. And though a tenth remains in the land, it will again be laid waste. But as terebinth and oak leave stumps when they are cut down, so the holy seed will be a stump in the land. The second reading is from Mark chapter 4. And we're starting at verse 1. Mark chapter 4, starting at verse 1. Again, Jesus began to teach by the lake. The crowd had gathered, that gathered around him was so large that he got into a boat and sat in it out on the lake where all the people were along the shore at the water's edge. He taught them many things by parables and in his teaching said, listen, a farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang out quickly because the soil was shallow But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants so that they did not bear grain. Still other seed 
fell on good soil. It came up, grew and produced a crop, some multiplying 30, some 60, some 100 times. Then Jesus said, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. When he was alone, the 12 and the others around him asked him about the parables. He told them, the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but to those on the outside, everything is said in parables, so that they may be ever seeing, but never perceiving, and ever hearing, but never understanding. Otherwise, they might turn and be forgiven. Then Jesus said to them, don't you understand this parable? How then will you understand any parable? The farmer sows the word. Some people are like seed along the path where the word is sown. As soon as they hear it, Satan comes and takes away the word that was sown in them. Others, like seeds sown on rocky places, hear the word and at once receive it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. Still others, like seeds sown among the thorns, hear the word, but the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires for other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. Others, like seeds sown on good soil, hear the word, accept it, and produce a crop, some 30, some 60, some 100 times what was sown. He said to them, do you bring in a lamp to put it under a bowl or a bed? Instead, don't you put it on its stand? For whatever is hidden is meant to be disclosed, and for what and whatever is concealed is meant to be brought out into the open. If anyone has ears to hear, let them hear. Consider carefully what you hear, he continued. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and even more. Whoever has been given more, whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. He also said, this is what the kingdom of God is like. A man scatters seed on the ground. Night and day, whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows, though he does not know how. All by itself, the soil produces grain. First the stalk, then the head, then the full kernel in the head. As soon as the grain is ripe, he puts the sickle to it, because the harvest has come. Again he said, what shall we say the kingdom of God is like? Or what parable shall we use to describe it? It is like a mustard seed, which is the smallest of all seeds on earth. Yet when it is planted, it grows and becomes the largest of all garden plants with such big branches that the birds can perch in its shade. With many similar parables, Jesus spoke the word to them as much as they could understand. He did not say anything to them without using a parable. But when he was alone with his own disciples, he explained everything. This is the word of the Lord. Morning, everyone. 
Lovely to see you all this morning. Please keep your Bibles open at our sermon passage, which is one we just had read, Mark uh, uh, 4, 1 through 34. I'll lead us briefly in prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that you speak to us uh, in your word and you do so always for our good. We pray that you'd uh, help us set aside hindrances and distractions this morning so that we could rejoice and tremble at your word and be strengthened by it to become more like our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, everyone, here on the screen is an ancient Greek philosopher named Epictetus, who clearly lived in the day when people's names sounded like a serious medical condition. I'm guessing most people will not know this person, but I do suspect that many of us will be quite familiar with one of his most famous sayings. He said, you've got two ears and one mouth so that you can listen twice as much as you speak. You guys know me, I have a, uh, an irreverent sense of humour, and so I feel like responding, well, Epictetus, you've got two legs and one brain, so you should think less and go away. However, he does have a very, very important point, which is probably why people have remembered his words for so long. No doubt you and I have all had times where our big mouths have gotten us into trouble or made us look a little bit stupid. We know what it's like to have someone not really talking to us, but talking at us because they're actually just concerned with getting out without actually engaging in a conversation. Uh, the Apostle James would write that the tongue is really hard to tame and that all of us ought to be quick to listen and slow to speak. But what does it actually mean to be a good listener? Not only in the sight of others, but more importantly, in the sight of the one who gave us our ears and our mouths. And why is it important to, as Jesus says in the passage we just had read, listen carefully to what we hear of God's revelation in particular and how do we do that well? Well, of course, that's what we're going to discover in today's uh, instalment from the Gospel of Mark. By way of context, I hope you remember from last week, that from the crowds, from the religious leaders, from Jesus' family members, from sinners, so-called, from demons, from all the people that have approached Jesus, you can sort of uh, distill down the responses people have had to him into four basic things, starting, thank you, Jono, with L. Jesus, for some, is the latest fad. He's good for a party trick, but they're not really interested in what he has to say. For some, he is a liar. You remember the blasphemy against Holy Spirit last week that he warned the Pharisees against, saying he's in league with the devil. So he's a liar. For some, he's a lunatic. You remember his family said, he's out of his mind. We've got to get him out of, of what he's doing. But for those with ears to hear, of course, they recognize the truth that he is Lord. He's the son of God who God has actually made to be the Christ and therefore is in charge of all people and all things. And so in this week's encounter with yet another huge crowd, Jesus goes on the front foot and starts doing something to separate those who sort of fit in the first three categories from those who actually fit within the last. Jesus speaks in parables in order to divide his hearers, to push the outsiders more outside and to draw, to motivate, to provoke the insiders to come and draw near. The scene gets set, verse 1, I hope you've got it in your Bibles in front of you. Uh, there's a crowd so huge that once again Jesus has to get on his uh, floating platform. And then in verse 2, he taught them many things we're told, yes, but by 
parables. Now, I know that some of you might have been taught once upon a time that a parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. Yeah, that really needs to go in the word bin or the phrase bin because that's thoroughly unbiblical. Eject that, it is rubbish. The parables, more than any other teaching of Jesus, need an explanation. They're not actually easy to understand. The, the word that we translate parable comes from the Hebrew word that means dark saying, something that's supposed to be difficult. An excellent example of one in the Old Testament is Samson giving the riddle to the Philistines in the hope that they won't be able to break it, right? That's a parable. A helpful way to think of a parable, and I spent ages coming up with this, so you better appreciate it, is a magnet. Remember the old horseshoe magnets, right? It will depending on the position of the other one, either really attract it or, if it's not the right way, it'll really repel, right? It's the same magnet, but it's going to have one or two effects depending on the position of the other magnet. That's a parable. That's the purpose of the parable. Jesus speaks in order to repel the crowd such that only those who are genuinely keen, those who have ears to hear, will be attracted to seek more. And so the teaching, as you can see there, verse 3, begins with a strong command. It's the really important one, listen. And then he gives the famous parable of the sower, the four soils, from verses 4 to 9, which I suspect most, if not all of you, are familiar with. It's it's a pretty well-known parable. And I will go through it in just a moment, because Jesus does. But then this is what happens afterwards, and this is a really important point to look at. We often miss this. Read with me in your Bibles from verse 10. Look at verse 10. When he was alone, the 12 and the others around him, so some from the crowd had had stuck, asked him about, note, the parables. They didn't ask him about the parable. They asked him about the parables, all of his teaching, right? They're not first and foremost asking about the meaning. They're asking, why are you speaking in a way that, frankly, is difficult? Verse 11, he told them, the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but to those on the outside, everything is said in parables, so that they may be ever seeing but never perceiving, ever hearing but never understanding, otherwise they might turn and be forgiven. He's quoting, of course, from Isaiah 6, which we had as the first reading, where God had already resolved, even though Isaiah was written before it happened, God had already resolved that Israel after the 10 northern tribes would be dispersed uh, in, in Assyria, the southern tribes would go into exile in Babylon. And that would happen so that the Messiah, the seed of David, would emerge not from a great nation, but from a tiny little stump that looks like it's burnt, right? God was going to bring that nation low, and that was actually part of his plan. And so, He sent Isaiah to confirm Israel in their hardness. Otherwise, if they did repent, he would have to forgive them and the plan wouldn't work. It's actually a prophet of judgment uh, we have in the person of Isaiah. And Jesus here does the same thing. He preaches primarily not to save, but to condemn. He knows God's plan is that those crowds who flocked around him would eventually become the ones who, when left to their own sinful devices, would end up yelling, crucify, crucify him, which happens at the end of the gospel. Jesus knew that God had destined for him to be, 1 Peter 2, 8, a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And because they be left to their own disobedience, 
they would do the necessary work of crucifying the Son of God so that those who were destined to become God's children would actually have a means of salvation. So, for these 12 and for the others who are pursuing Jesus for the right reasons, after explaining the reason for speaking in a divisive way, of course, Jesus then goes on to give the secret meaning of the parable that Mark has recorded for us, uh, the parable of the, uh, the, the sower. Point two on your outline, the explanation gets given, thankfully, to the insiders, which is the only reason we know what the parable means. Now, it turns out that the explanation for this particular parable, the one that Mark has recorded, the parable of the sower, is to make the very same point that Jesus has just made to his disciples privately, that there are those who are interested in Jesus but aren't actually interested in the kingdom. Those who might want to come along for the ride but who aren't interested in actually seeking first the kingdom of heaven as would be demonstrated by serious and humble listening. And so after provoking even the insiders a little bit in verse 13, presumably with the aim that they'd listen even more carefully, Jesus then explains the parable of the sower. Read with me from verse 14. The farmer sows the word. Some people are like seed along the path where the word is sown. As soon as they hear it, Satan comes and takes away the word that was sown in them. If you ever hear someone say, you know, the thing I really love about Jesus, he's such a clever storyteller, you know. It's so clever how he comes up with interesting ways of explaining. Yeah, the word has been snatched, right? They're interested in, in Jesus, but not the content of what he, what he actually says. The cleverness, but, but not the truth. Someone might think to themselves, and I have met people like this, look, I just cannot accept that all people are inherently evil, such that we needed Jesus to suffer that horrendous wrath of God in the place of sinners like us so that we could find forgiveness. I just cannot accept that. I don't think I'm all that evil. And Satan, of course, loves convincing people that we're more righteous than the Word of God says we actually are. Hence, again, the Word of God gets snatched away. Verse 16, the next lot, others like seed sown on rocky places, hear the Word and at once receive it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes, note, because of the Word... That's the thing I'm on about. Because of the word, they quickly fall away. Uh, some of you will know this. I've said it before, but for the benefit of those who don't, I, I learned this lesson really, really well, um, for which I'm ever th uh, thankful, uh, at my own conversion. Uh, the person, my uncle in my family, who, who told me the gospel, uh, set out two ways to live in front of me, and there and then I said, I want to turn and become a follower of Jesus. To which he responded, no. And he said, take the stuff I've written Read the Bible, think about it, go away. And, I, and a few weeks later, I, you know, I thought, wouldn't, wouldn't you really want me if to, to, isn't the whole point that, you know, like you've heard the gospel, I want to repent? Or, yes. But number one, if you're going to be saved, it's because God's going to save you no matter what. So it doesn't matter what I do. And number two, it's really, really important that you just don't have this hype, spur of the moment sort of, you know, happy decision and haven't thought through that the cost of being a disciple is giving up your life, take up your cross and follow me. 
And we all know the pain of seeing someone suddenly come to Christ, it would seem, and then it's only a short while later that suddenly they realise it's all a bit much and off they go again. And then comes the one that I think hits the church in the Western world hardest of all. Verse 18. Still others, like seed sown among thorns, hear the word, but the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth and the desires for other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. The worries of this life refers to this age, this this world, rather than the age to come, the new creation. We can and frankly do so easily get preoccupied with making sure we're as comfortable and as fulfilled as possible in the here and now that we've got no time or energy left to make sure we're ready for the there and then, even though the there and then is just a little bit longer than the here and now. The deceitfulness of wealth refers to the idea that wealth guarantees comfort and security, doesn't it? But of course it doesn't. It seldom, in fact, delivers those things. The people in the modern Western world, we have more wealth, better medical care, better life expectancy than basically all other people throughout all human history. And yet, we have far more depression and anxiety and a far higher rate of suicide than people currently in the third world. And as the church is increasingly infiltrated by our rich materialistic culture, so the deceitfulness of wealth chokes out the fruitfulness. The desires for other things can mean even good things, but things that get in the way of fruitful Christian growth because they attract our desire more than living in accordance with the priorities Jesus makes clear in his word. What a devastatingly sad reality that 30 plus years ago, in order to have 100 people at your gathering on a Sunday, you needed 120 on the books, because 20 people, you know, there'd be some sick, some on holidays or whatever. Now, in order to have 100 people average, you need 200 people on your books plus. The desires for other things choke out the fruitfulness. What a devastatingly sad reality to think that once upon a time, Christians protested against Sunday trading, but that now one of the big reasons people neglect Sunday fellowship is sport. What a ridiculous thing. The desires for other things choke out the fruitfulness. Mind you, we didn't protest hard enough against Sunday trading or no-fault divorce or abortion legislation, so that when it came to protesting against homosexual marriage, we were already on the back foot. And now with euthanasia, the move to eradicate SRE from schools, we're too busy making a living, paying off the mortgage, planning the next overseas holiday, taking the kids to all the extracurricular activities to protest much at all. Plus, we keep buying into the lie that it's somehow noble to not have any involvement in political stuff. We just want to get on with preaching the gospel. Even though the very gospel we preach compels us to love our neighbour, which necessitates political involvement. What a devastatingly sad reality that it's easy to find Christians posting on social media far more about their fitness achievements then there's spiritual battles. Far more about what we eat and drink and wear, which are the things that the pagans run after, than anything pertaining to the kingdom of heaven, which we're supposedly seeking first. Satan's gospel 
is that you can say yes to Jesus and yes to the world. What a beautiful gospel Satan has provided us with. Yes to the gospel, I want Jesus, but I don't want to give up anything in the world. What a devastatingly sad reality that's one of the biggest ways we see young people get the life choked out of them is by the dating of, or even worse, the marrying to a non-Christian. The fact that this is a big issue that we need to fight against, and I do because I'm a youth minister, shows how far behind we really are. The desire for other things chokes out the fruitfulness. During my time at Moore Theological College, it was a wonderful time, there were some students who had given up, as you can understand, lucrative careers in order to go into full-time vocational ministry, for which the pushback they got came not only from their worldly friends and family, but from Christian family members. The deceitfulness of wealth is choking out the fruitfulness. Now, for many people, Jesus' magnet here will repel on account of its intolerant, un-PC, uninclusive, all-or-nothing kind of tone. But, brothers and sisters, for some it will yet attract. It will provoke you, as it does me, to want to latch onto something more to want to be different to those three useless soils. And I hope that is you. I suspect for most, if not all of us, it is. Because then you are either on, or are frankly soon to be on, the good soil. Verse 20, other seed sown on the good soil. They're the ones that hear the word, accept it, and produce a crop, some 30, some 60, some 100 times what was shown. You can tell a good disciple, a good soil disciple, by how fruitful they are. Now, I know it's easy to hear that and think, oh, gosh, what if I'm not fruitful enough? Bear with me. By how committed they are to hearing and obeying the word of God, yes. By how keen they are on fruitful and effective ministry and Christian growth, yes, yes, yes. But also by how over time they're increasingly disappointed with their own sinfulness and shortcomings, yes. By how much they're willing to sacrifice in order to see others get planted on that good soil? Absolutely. And I hope that you'll get on board with the mission training that's happening this week. But also, at the same time, by how thankful they are and how much of a few they do to know that God is the ultimate planter and gardener and grower and that it therefore doesn't ultimately rely on me and my own efforts. And I'm actually safe to admit my faults and my shortcomings, which again is part of that fruitfulness. You don't have to hear, pull up your socks and do better or God's going to be angry, right? That, that, that's not what the fruitfulness is. It includes a good motivation and Jesus can be a pretty hard hitter. I want to see the fruitfulness, guys. But that never happens without at one and the same time the wonderful truth that Jesus, being gentle and lowly, wants to embrace people, wants to forgive people, wants you to grow into a good crop. We admit that in and of ourselves, we cannot be on the good soil, not by ourselves. We don't brush over or deny the many hurts, the failings, the issues of this world. We recognise the pull of those things in this world is strong. And we, myself included, often get overpowered by those thorns. We don't stay there. We keep listening to the words of our God and Saviour. We keep repenting of our sins in the wonderful knowledge that he has done absolutely everything to ensure we can say with conviction there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And ironically, it's the ones who are planted on this good soil 
who actually find the genuine comfort and security. We don't always get happiness in this world, but we do get joy. We don't always get wealth and prosperity, though pretty much everyone in this country does, but we get contentment. We might lose friends and family who are enslaved to the trimmings and trappings of this world, yes, but we gain brothers and sisters and mothers in Christ and in the age to come eternal life. So Jesus encourages us to be those kind of people who desperately and unashamedly cling to his word, to search intently for the meaning of the teaching. Because for all the light that Jesus' teaching shines, it's still pretty useless if the person ain't going to make an effort to open their eyes. He wants you to open them. Verse 21, he said to them, don't bring a lamp. Uh, Do you bring a lamp to put under a bowl or a bed? Of course not. Instead, don't you put on a stand. For whatever is hidden is meant to be disclosed, and whatever is concealed is meant to be brought out in the open. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. You are meant to pursue this. You are meant to put in the effort of listening to Jesus' word. And what does it mean to hear Jesus properly? Well, he continues, verse 24, consider carefully what you hear, he continued. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you and even more. Whoever has will be given more. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. Basically, if you go hard, if you're like the attractive magnet, if you grab on to the teacher and chase after him, after the crowds of all dispersed and say, teacher, please explain it to me, then you're one who has and you will be given more. But if you're along with the crowd, hey, that was a spectacular miracle, I'll come back tomorrow and watch him do another one. Then even what you have will be taken away. This is why Mark, in the final section of today's passage, includes more teaching that Jesus gave to the crowd. So it's kind of like teaching the crowds, disciples in the middle, then teaching the crowds again, right? He includes at the end section more teaching that Jesus gave to the crowds and warns them that unless they actively seek the kingdom, which you do by careful listening, humble listening, then the kingdom can just so easily be missed. It will just pass you by. From verse 26, he gives yet another parable of the sower who has got no idea how the seeds, once they're planted, grow into a crop, then get harvested, but he knows that it does happen. In fact, there's such a great difference in the end of the harvest compared to the beginning, the little seeds, that you might be taken by surprise. It's kind of too late. Oh, whoa, where did did that come from? That's what the final parable is actually about. Read with me from verse 30. Verse 30 again, he said, what shall we say the kingdom of God is like? Or what parable shall we use to describe it? Well, it's like a mustard seed, which is the smallest of all seeds on earth. Yet when planted, it grows and becomes the largest of all garden plants with such big branches that the birds can perch in its shade. The smallest of all seeds. Don't look carefully, there's no way you'll see it. The growth is slow and gradual. So unless you actually know it's happening, you might not even realise until it's too late. Good listening means putting in effort to understand the Word of God. It involves letting God's Word change and shape your feelings and expectations rather than letting your feelings and expectations shape God's Word. It means ordering your life and priorities around God's kingdom rather than ordering God's kingdom around your life and priorities. If I had to put it into a simple sentence, this sort of slab of teaching from Mark, uh, I'd say something like, and I think it's on the screen, genuine members of Jesus' kingdom will humbly and painstakingly cherish 
what God has revealed in his word. And that means even when it hurts, you can actually be hurt by it and yet cherish it. You can know that that magnet has some repulsive effect to it and yet say, no, I know this is legit. This is where I want to keep putting in my my effort. This is what I want to keep sitting under. Now, I can't say that without then immediately uh, saying uh, to those who may be in the actual seeking category, those who are yet still not sure where, which L they put Jesus in, whether he's a loony, a liar, or whether they're actually going to accept him as Lord. Um, you may have heard the expression that it's always good to keep an open mind, right? Now, that's true. That's really helpful. Next slide. It's always good to, to have an open mind when you're investigating something. If you are investigating Jesus and you're here this morning, I think that's absolutely wonderful and I'm so glad that you're doing it. This is the right place to come and investigate Jesus, right? We teach the Bible here. We, we know Jesus Christ is our Lord and Saviour. This is a good place to do it. And we do think it's important to keep an open mind, however. The idea of having an open mind is so that eventually it will close on something. Otherwise, after a while, your brain will fall out, right? If you know, even these four chapters in with Mark, I know we're only a small way through the gospel, if you know already that it is true that Jesus Christ must be the Son of God, in whom alone you can be saved from your sin, in whom alone you can be transferred from darkness into the light of his kingdom and enjoyed eternity with him, well, stop seeking Seek in order to find, but if you've found, then go, all right, I'm going to do this thing. I'm going to let Jesus be the Lord of my life, not myself. I'm going to start adjusting my priorities so that Jesus and his kingdom are the things that, that actually occupy me. They're the things that I want to grab onto even if it hurts. Seek in order to find. But I suspect most of us have already, after tasting and seeing that the Lord is good, have already found the true life that is to be found only in Jesus. We know uh, that because of God's amazing grace, we are on the good soil. And therefore, I think the parable applies almost in the same way. We're to keep on seeking more. The disciples of Jesus are the ones who, you know, remember the story, Mary and Martha, who give up the other stuff to sit at the feet of Jesus and keep listening. I've noticed over time that as I keep coming to Jesus and the Word of God and keep seeking to have my life shaped by it, that I become ever more aware of my own failings and shortcomings. It's like the longer you're a Christian, the more sinful you realise that you actually are, that the greater the rescue must have been in order for you to be growing on that good soil. If you left it just there, you'd get this thing that some scholars call spiritual depression. You keep working out that oh, I'm bad at this, I'm bad at that, I'm no good at this, I'm no good at that, yada, yada, yada. However, the word that Jesus speaks, the word that is the word of God, does just as much truth-telling about our sin as it does about his holiness, which includes his, his unbelievable grace toward us, Right? The more you realise what a sinner you are, the more you also realise what a great saviour God is. And that happens as the cross of Jesus remains central. See, the cross 
The wonderful thing, it does two things simultaneously. It shows you this is what sinful humanity deserves. The wrath of God being poured out full strength, right? And at the very point that Jesus endured that horrible wrath, it was done so that you and I might be on the good soil, so that you and I might be thoroughly forgiven, embraced by God. He actually willingly did that. He wants you to be a cherished son or daughter of him. And it's as if that same magnet (laughs) that is the Word of God does its repelling and attracting all at the same time as you keep growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord. Uh, You might have questions about that, but I'd encourage you to put them on your Connect form uh, with a QR code. I'm going to close in prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for your Son, our Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, who speaks the truth as we need to hear it, who speaks in such a way as to confirm outsiders in where they're already confirmed, but to draw in and to provoke insiders to what we need in order to grow and thrive as your children. Heavenly Father, may we be unashamed of being the good soil people who keep seeking to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord and therefore those who are unashamed of confessing and repenting of our many failings. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.